0: If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 1, and I'll just read our passage before we get going here. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. This is Zachariah's prophecy. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we decided again to uh, change the orientation of the room a little bit on this first Sunday of Advent to bring our focus mainly to the candles and also to be able to uh, look at each other rather than me the whole time. But it's good to have this uh, season of Advent before us, these four Sundays that lead up to Christmas Day. And even historically, after Christmas Day, you have the 12 days of Christmas, which are this, this extension of what Christmas actually means. And and these weeks and the days were meant to actually give us a whole season where we're thinking about christ's arrival and advent is not something that is um seen in scripture it's not something that we're told to do it's a tradition that's come through church history and just a little background it uh, started in like the late 300s actually in response to some false teaching that was coming up in the church. The false teaching, you've maybe heard of this word before, was called Gnosticism, which basically said that, um, you know, everything material in the world is evil and is fallen. It's part of, you know, Satan's realm, and everything spiritual is holy and connected to God. And this was beginning to creep into the church, and and, um, the church fathers at that time said, this is not accurate. This is not truth. This is actually heresy because Christ came in the flesh. He didn't come and become evil and sinful in the flesh. He was still perfectly holy. And so at this time, they they actually started commemorating this, this truth, this incarnation of Christ that God became flesh. God became human. He came to this planet. And It also coincided with the darkest time of the year and the winter solstice. And so they thought this is a great opportunity for believers in the church to gather together to think about the reality and the truth of the incarnation of Christ. And so was born this season of Advent. And like we were just hearing in our reading for this first week, um, 2020 feels like a good year to have Advent, doesn't it? It's just been one of those years of... Uh, it's a once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-century kind of a year, at least we hope, right, where there's um, disappointment and difficulty around the world. Economies have been rocked. Um, lives have been altered. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And people are feeling maybe more than ever just the darkness and the disappointment of our natural world that we live in. And and into this moment, this is the very reason why we've been given Advent, to be reminded of the hope of Christ and the hope that has come into our world. And so we want to do what we would normally think of as a natural thing to do in spring. We actually want to plant some seeds, okay? In spring, we're, we get this. We plant seeds, and we know that in the coming months, they're going to bear fruit. They're going to A plant is going to come, and depending on what you're planting, some kind of fruit or harvest is going to be had. Well, this Advent season, together as a church, we want to plant seeds of hope, we want to plant seeds of love, we want to plant seeds of peace, so that they will bear fruit now in the Christmas season, but even in the months of January, February, and March, as we continue to walk through this season of the pandemic. So it's a prayer that I've been praying for us as a congregation, and a prayer that I hope to see um, actually answered by Christ in the coming months here, that this this season of Advent will speak to all of us. So we just read our passage, which is in Luke chapter 1, which is Zechariah's prophecy. And the background to that story is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are this old couple that are unable to have children. And it's a prayer request that they've had for their whole lives. And Zechariah goes into the temple. He works at the temple. He's, he's working on doing sacrifices and prayers. And he goes into the temple. We don't have time to look at it, but you can see in the first part of the chapter that a angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Zechariah, Elizabeth will have a child. And the, the prayer request that you've been longing for is going to come to be. And Zechariah questions this, you know, and uh, the angel says, are you questioning me? I'm sent here by God. Like I stand in the presence of God and you're questioning the message that I have for you. And so the result of this questioning is actually that Zechariah is mute. And if you look at the text, it probably even indicates that he was deaf, right? He's, he's cut off from being able to communicate verbally or to hear the, what people are saying around him. And he spends then months and months and months in silence. And when we come here to this prayer, it's this moment where John is now born, their son is born, and he says he will be called John, and his mouth is opened up as he's writing these things out. And the first things coming out of his mouth are this hymn, it's been called, or it's, it's a, maybe a prayer. Um, historically, it's been called the Benedictus. It is a hymn that was sung, and it's similar in line to Mary's song, which is earlier in the chapter as well. So we're going to look at this hymn, this song, and we're just going to see three elements of the promise. So this this week in Advent, we're thinking of the promise and the hope that we have and promises fulfilled. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the promised Redeemer, the promised salvation, and the promised hope. Okay, the promised Redeemer, the promised salvation, and the promised hope. So the first one is the promised redeemer. Again, look at verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now it's it's interesting here that Zechariah has suddenly become a person of assurance. He, he says, This has happened. That the Redeemer has come and he's redeemed his people, even though this actually hasn't happened yet. The redemption is going to come when Christ dies on the cross, goes through his whole life in ministry. Yet here, Zechariah is with total, sure confidence that this is what has happened. And it's fascinating to see again, someone who was a doubter before God is now fully assured in God's presence. And the word of God is full of people, like so many people to name, that doubted God for various reasons. You know, we think back over the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament fathers were doubters in some way in their life. You think of Abraham and Sarah whose story mirrors really closely with, with Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, These great names that we would hold on to that had moments of doubt in their life. We just looked at the prophet Jonah right in the fall, another one who over and over again doubted. We think even in the in the New Testament, all the disciples at some point doubted Christ, even having been with him face to face. And probably the most famous doubter is Peter and Thomas, right? Those two were kind of clarified as like doubting people. So the word of God is full of believers and saints who at different moments in their life had doubts about what God was doing around them. And all of us, I'm sure, at different points in our life have had moments of doubt too. I've had moments where we're questioning, what is God doing around us? Maybe it's um, through a moment of difficulty or hardship. And in that moment of hardship, the first response is to doubt that God is in this, that God could be a part of this because of the pain of the moment. But there's also times where just the joys of life and maybe the the affluence that we enjoy, or the the great gifts that actually come from God, those things can almost lead us, and often do lead us, to doubt in God again. Because we say, I'm not sure if I really need God. My life is going pretty smooth. I have everything I need. You know, things seem to be clicking along just well, and, and maybe this is what Life is really just all about it. I just kind of got to work hard and provide for myself and things kind of work out. So it's interesting that the good things in life, the actual gifts from God, and also the difficult things in life can both bring us to moments of doubt. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote this once. He said, A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of Grace. And many of us can understand a statement like that. Like usually it's when we get tired of this world or when it doesn't seem to satisfy like it should that we actually begin to lean into the grace of God. And so the doubts that we face are not things that we should run away from. They're not feelings or thoughts that we should um, ignore or say that they don't matter. The Word of God actually gives good clarity around what to do with doubts. And, and really quickly here, three things to remember when we are doubting, whether it's in moments of pain or moments of joy. The first is that Jesus is actually okay with doubt. And we could preach a whole series probably on that, the examples where Christ is actually okay with, and is willing to um, be close to people who doubt him. In Matthew 7, 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Christ is saying, Seek, look for me. you have questions? you have doubts? Look. Go towards me. Don't pull away from me. Actually, move towards me with your questions and your doubts. Seek me. So, Jesus is okay with doubts, but we're also encouraged to rehearse the goodness of God. So as believers, when doubts come into our life, when doubts come into our mind, into our hearts, which they do and and they, they will at some point, we are called to rehearse the goodness of God to us. So we think of the Old Testament. Think of when Israel crossed the Jordan River, and what is the first thing that God tells them to do? Make a pile of stones. Take some stones as a memorial for all that you've seen and experienced because you will need to remember that when other trouble comes forward. And you'd think they would say, how would we ever forget the things that we have experienced? How is this possible, God? Do we really need to put this pile of rocks out here? We're never going to forget these things. But we know that we all forget them, right? We all forget the good things. And even in... In the hard things, the things that we learn as a result of those hard things, we are called as believers to rehearse those things because our doubts will creep in and we will forget the goodness of God in all areas of life. So we're reminded to put those stones of reminder out for us as well. And then we are actually told and we're reminded in Scripture that we are to ask God to help us. In our, in our doubts, in our unbelief, we're to ask God to help us. And in the Gospels, there's a story, there's many stories where uh, Christ is healing people. And there's one story where he is asked by a man to, for the man's son to be healed. And Christ says, okay, I'll heal him. But he says, just imagine the other work that I could do if people believed in me. And the man comes back to him and says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Have you felt that way before? Like, God, I believe, but in this moment, I kind of don't believe. So I'm holding on to this, but at the same time, help me, God. Help me believe. And so doubt is a regular part of the believer's life to varying degrees. And doubt is a regular theme throughout the word of God. And so here is Zechariah in this moment of doubt, now coming to like great assurance in what God is doing. And and what is it that God is doing? He says, God has visited and has redeemed his people. Now, redeeming, it's not like a word that we use very often, right? I bet nobody used the word redeem this week, I'm guessing. (laughs) Um, Probably nobody's used that word in the last month or maybe ever in your life just in a sentence, you know. It doesn't just come out. But to redeem means to... Set free by paying a price. It means to set free by paying a price, and I found an example in in the Old Testament that maybe will help our thinking. It it will help your thinking if you uh, like metaphors of oxes. Okay, this comes from. Um, Exodus, where God is trying to clarify for the people how to live together. And so He's got all these laws on how they're supposed to work. And so in Exodus 21, he talks about how to deal with an ox that goes astray. okay? If you had an ox that was like a bit of a troublesome ox, this is what you're supposed to do in the Old Testament. It says this in verse 28. "When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, so that's first rule. If the ox just goes and kills someone, it's the end of the ox. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but it has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and the owner also shall be put to death. All right, so if there's an ox, if your ox has gotten out, and it's kind of people in the town know that ox troublesome and it actually goes and kills someone then the law here says that the ox is going to pay the price but so is the owner the owner of the ox is also going to be put to death this is the the justice that is brought down on the community for that individual but listen to this listen to verse 30 if a ransom is imposed on him so if there's a cost that is put out there that the the person, the guilty party, whether it's a family or something, says, here's the cost. This is the ransom. This is what it will cost to kind of make right what has gone wrong. Then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So they say, if this is the case and he wants to save his life, there is a cost that is going to be incurred. And if that cost is Put out there as a ransom then he can pay that ransom and it uses that word his life has been redeemed the redemption of his life there's a cost that has to be paid and so this word that Zechariah is using is not connected to a animal goring another one but it is the redemption of people the cost that needs to be incurred for people and so for us as believers our wrong that has been done to God is only paid through one means, and it says in Romans six twenty three, "For the wages of sin is death." This is the price that it would pay to, to pay the ransom for our redemption. And Zechariah here is saying that price has been paid. We have been redeemed. That price has fully been paid. Look at Romans three twenty four. I'll just read a couple of verses here that that clarify for us that redemption Romans 3:24 says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and maybe even clearer Hebrews 9:15 says therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ is our redemption. And Zechariah says, he has come, he has visited his people, and he has redeemed his people. There's a great hymn that I love when we sing this hymn. It's called, And Can It Be? And verse 4 just captures in beautiful poetry this reality. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is the redemption of our souls. This is what has has taken place with the arrival of Christ. So the promised redeemer. But secondly here, the promised salvation. The promised salvation. We see verses 69 through 75. We read those. And he begins by saying that he has raised up a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation. This is a Hebrew metaphor. Okay, When when we think of... uh, power, we think of maybe like a rocket ship going up to space, or maybe if you're like a car enthusiast, you're thinking of like the latest Lamborghini that has, you know, over 700 horsepower, something strong and powerful like that. Well, in the Hebrew mind, what came to their mind was a horn, the horn of an animal, maybe like the ox that we were just talking about, or maybe the The mountain goats that were in Israel, and if you've ever seen that on like a nature show where when these two males come together with their horns and they crash together, that's what this word horn is. It is a word of power. So Zechariah is saying this promised salvation is going to come through the house of David, through this kingly line, and it is going to be a horn of power to break the, the, the bonds that sin has placed mankind under. And so the darkness and the pain and the brokenness of our world, we all live within that. And, and here Zachariah is saying, it's going to take something extremely powerful. It's going to take the, the horn of salvation to accomplish what God has been trying to do from the beginning. And, and in the minds of most first century Jews, they are thinking, yes, Somebody to come and release us from the oppression of Rome. Someone to come and crush Rome and just destroy them and give us our land. And they're thinking war, victory, something like that. But this Benedictus does not celebrate weapons of war. It celebrates a child coming in a manger, coming in lowliness, weakness, It comes through strength still, strength enough to um, destroy sin, but it comes through a lowly and meek servant. And so this horn of salvation comes, but you can see here in these verses this language of waiting. So verse 72 says, Show us the mercy promised, and then remember his holy covenant, and the oath, verse 73 says, The oath is, that he swore to his fathers. This is all language of waiting. And I'm guessing that most of us, if you're like me, we don't like to wait. Even in our household already, the the waiting for Christmas morning has arrived. You know, the, the calendar is ticking, but none of us like to wait. I remember this summer, um, my oldest daughter and I, we went to Ikea to get some furniture for her. And waiting in lines, right? This was a pandemic shopping day. I don't know if anybody went to Ikea during the pandemic, but it was not enjoyable. Waiting, like, in these lines outside, cooking. I mean, going to Ikea is barely enjoyable on a, in a regular day, right? But to wait in line and then to get in there, and we were just so desperate to find our things and get out of there. We just wanted out so badly because waiting for most of us is difficult. Yet here's this language of a people in waiting. And this is not just a waiting in line at Ikea. This is centuries of waiting from the beginning of Genesis 3, this promise that's been given to God's people that someone would come and restore and make right all that sin made wrong. This waiting has been century after century after century. And in Psalm 6, verse 3, David writes this. He says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? And he's talking about just the troubles of his day. He's just saying, How long, God, do we have to wait for the resolution to all these things that are happening? Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 3 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Waiting. Waiting. And here at Advent, we continue to wait, not for his first arrival. We've seen his first coming. We, this is why this moment of Advent and Christmas, on one hand, is this celebration. It is this acknowledgement that God keeps his promises, the hope that we have is based on reality, but we now wait for his second coming. We wait for him to return, and we continue to wait. So even as New Testament believers, we still have this longing and this waiting. Paul says in Romans 8, through 23, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we continue to wait, but we wait in hope. Tim Keller says this, that you cannot judge God by your calendar. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame on a schedule that we consider reasonable. Yet God is continuing to work around us. Even in our day as we wait, it's been 2,000 years around since Christ was here and we still wait for his return. We still anticipate his return. But God does not work on our calendars. Our calendars would say that it would be done already probably or that he should come tomorrow. Um, and yet God's timing is never off and it's never wrong. And so we wait in the in-between here. So the promised Redeemer And the promised salvation, and really quickly here, the promised hope. Verse 78 again says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here, the end of his hymn is this, this imagery, these two sides, on one hand, you have this sun rising, the, the light is coming up, and, and on a day like today or yesterday, when the sun is actually shining, you just it's just a beautiful morning, but yet it's contrasted here by the darkness that people sit in, the shadow of death that we still have to live under, and so you've got both these things happening, where you've got this darkness, and you have this light And the hope of Christ, the the Christmas season is actually meant to remind us that the light has broken through because in our darkness and in our moments of sitting under the shadow, we um, lose perspective and we can lose our way and we can even lose our purpose. I was thinking of this uh, movie. I'm not sure if there's any Lord of the Rings buffs here, but in The Two Towers, There's this moment in the story, um, and you can find little clips of it on YouTube or whatever, where uh, Frodo and Samwise are still on this journey. They've been on this journey to get rid of the ring and throw it into the Mount Mordor and destroy evil, and the weight of this journey is just weighing on them and, and it's it's like they are in the shadow of death. and Frodo especially carrying the weight of this ring, carrying you know this metaphorical evil is under it. And in this moment in the movie, everything kind of breaks into chaos and and Frodo finds himself over Sam with his sword pointed right at his neck. And these are the two best of friends. And I thought, man, that imagery is is so perfect because in our moments where we're sitting in the shadow of darkness and in our moments where we're um, under the weight of sin, we, we do things like that where we, we go against everything that is within us where suddenly we find we're holding a knife to the thing that we have loved and been connected to. And Sam in that moment says, Frodo, it's, it's your Sam. Can't you see your Sam? Sam. And he stops in that moment and Frodo slowly backs up and he drops his sword and he says, Sam, I can't do this anymore. And listen to this. Sam says this. He says, I know it's all wrong. We shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, he says, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. And This is just fictional imagery for us, but it captures the reality of what Christmas is. Christmas is not just a fairy tale. It's not just a fictional story. Luke is recording for us his investigation into the reality of Jesus' arrival. This light, like this single candlelight here that is piercing the darkness, when everything seems like it should be going wrong, when everything feels like it is under this darkness and the shadow of death, into that moment pierces this one who would guide our feet to the way of peace. The hope we have This morning, and what Christmas tells us is is despite all appearances and contrary to everything, that our God is in control of history. And even in this moment, this moment of societal and global darkness, our God is present and we're reminded that he has come to be with us. So this Advent season, we want to remember our God Christ with us. And just in closing here, there, there are, I'm going to leave you here with two Greek words, okay? It's good to leave a service with two Greek words. There's two Greek words for time. One is chronos and one is kairos, okay? Maybe you knew that already, but chronos is like chronological, right? It is, it is the, the clicking of the time. It is the seconds going by, or maybe for most of us, it is the the details of our day that just come and present themselves and they must be done. That is Chronos time. It's just clicking along. It's a checklist. It's the things to do. It's dinner. It's all that kind of stuff. Kairos is the word for a season of opportunity. It's a time. It's still a, a time measurement, but it is it is not so much the Chronos kind of the details of it. It is this season that is before us. And so as we ponder these next four weeks on Advent, we I want to encourage you, I want to point you towards using this time as Kairos time. Because the Kronos time will always want to creep in and say, this is what Christmas is about. It's about all the details. It's about all the things. And those will stay and they will always be there. But we want to be people who are open to this Kairos time, this season of opportunity. And so together, we want to say, Lord, this This hope that we have, would you plant a seed of hope in my heart this week, in this season of Advent, so that I can deeper follow you and see the fruit born in the coming months. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the many reminders that we have in Scripture of your coming. We thank you, God, for this hymn of prayer that reminds us that you have come and that we have hope in you. And so, Lord, we just pray that this Advent season would just uh, put us on solid ground again and remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's a hope that we enjoy together as believers, and it's a hope that the world desperately needs to know. We pray that all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.